0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Hello, gentle listeners, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 85 Crime and Punishment. This week, another peregrination. During the great silver penny giveaway, there were comments about a desire to hear more about crime in medieval England, and so, obedient and compliant as ever, I've produced one. I read a few books with sections on crime and punishment for today's episode, and there were some more obviously scholarly but none were as easy to understand as the chapter in Ian's, and therefore I used Ian's almost exclusively, I have to admit, so I make no apology for recommending this book again. One day, in 1303, a fisherman in the Thames landed a most unusual fish, a silver goblet belonging to none other than the King of England. The fisherman would have been holding an object worth more than he had in likelihood ever held before or ever would again. Now, if said fisherman had had access to Tinternet in those days, he'd have found lots of other people in the blogosphere reporting strange goings-on, as Mrs Miggins would say. Silver plates were found behind tombstones in the churchyard of St Margaret's Church in Westminster. Small boys in neighbouring fields found precious dishes under hedgerows. prostitute, flaunted an outrageously precious ring and told everyone that Adam, the sacrist at Westminster Abbey, had given it to her to keep her affections, as it were. What was going on? All these objects, it turned out, belonged to the king and had somehow walked from his treasury, deep and supposedly secure in the crypt beneath Westminster Abbey, carefully guarded by the monks of the abbey. Finally, suspicions aroused an inspection of the treasury was undertaken by John Droxford, the keeper of the King's wardrobe, bearing in mind that the King's wardrobe was basically the King's personal finance department, rather than a cupboard in the corner. To their horror, they found they'd been robbed of treasure worth 100000 quid. Now, I'm very much indebted to someone out there for alerting me to the lecture given by Professor Tout, in the mid-1940s, for this rather neat story about the theft of the Crown Jewels. But I have a memory of a goldfish, and simply can't remember who it was, but thanks anyway. And I thought this episode about crime and punishment would come at a good spot, since as it happens, it was symptomatic of a general wave of lawlessness in medieval England at this time that had even Edward I worried. So, what had happened to the Crown Jewels? As you all know, in the first years of the 1300s, Edward was much away on his travels, poking the Scots in their collective eye. Which meant that he was very little at Westminster to look after the palace, but never mind. While he was away, he appointed a keeper, a man called John Sench, who also happened to be keeper of Fleet Prison to boot. He also employed a deputy, a man called William. And together, John Sench and William kept the deserted palace while the king was away. Now, by all accounts... Both men recognised that it would be a crime against partying not to make the most of such a fabulously central party location. So by all accounts, the hallowed halls of Westminster rang to the sound of clanking goblets while the cat was away, trying to get his paws on the elusive Scottish mouse. It appears that the same laxity towards their duties applied equally to their keeping of the crown jewels. Meanwhile, right next door were the monks of Westminster Abbey who paid no heed whatsoever to the ancient abbot, Walter of Wenlock, and were up for a party, and so they duly joined in. And then into this happy, carefree atmosphere wandered a bloke called Richard Pudlicott. Richard was not a fan of King Edward. Once upon a time he had been a prosperous merchant, plying his trade with Flanders. But then the king had left his wars in Flanders leaving a mass of unpaid debts behind him, so he'd had to leave hostages against his repayment of those debts. Richard had been one of those hostages, Edward hadn't bothered to pay his debts, and so all Richard's goods had been seized and he had been ruined. Richard duly made friends with the monks at Westminster and joined in the partying. His financial position greatly helped by being able to half-inch a massive silver plate from the monks' dormitory. But by 1302, this money had gone, and Pudlicott was looking for a replacement source of income, and his eye fell on the treasury. Now at his later trial, Pudlicott claimed he'd had no help whatsoever, and he'd done everything himself. He had apparently cut through 13 foot of solid masonry, crawled into the treasury, and taken everything away. It's reasonably clear, however, that a pig had been cleaned, and that this was therefore hogwash what really happened was that Richard's accommodating friend gave him a key or enough access to cut through the door and make away with the treasure. As it happens, there's no great mystery about who was responsible because of Richard's almost total incompetence at fencing the treasure. The King's investigators found treasure in the house of Padlicott and his mistress, a bit of a giveaway, and in the houses of John Sench and William, the keepers of the palace. 32 other loyal royal servants were arrested, along with 48 monks and Adam the sacrist, and sent to the tower. The whole thing had been a massive heist. But medieval justice was a funny and idiosyncratic thing. After another year of jurors and investigation, pretty much all of the accused were let off and pardoned. Some had been wrongly accused, others prevailed on the king's good offices. All the monks were released, since the last thing Edward needed in 1305 was a scandal about abuse of the clergy. The only man to actually hang was Richard Pudlicott himself. As I say, the theft of the crown jewels was generally in line with both the progress of medieval justice and the state of the nation at the time. You might think that in 1304 that all the chaos of conflict and warfare was now behind Edward, and England would be at peace and tranquillity, the birds would sing, and God would be in his heaven. But in fact, the theft of the crown jewels was not just a rather remarkable but one-off example of organised crime. One of the consequences of decades of warfare was a massive crime wave. All over the country there were organised gangs, who in the words of a contemporary, wander around the countryside doing, committing and procuring evil deeds. There were many reasons for what was clearly exceptional levels of violence, even for a society where violence was all around. One was that in medieval England, or indeed any autocracy, so much of the day-to-day administration and control came through the king's hand. Edward simply hadn't been focused on law and order for some time while he was fighting all his wars. Worse, he'd actually compounded the situation, because there's clearly a link between crime and politics. Edward had emptied the country's jails to recruit for his armies of foot soldiers, for example. Once the campaign was over, these men were at liberty, And also, while the magnates were dragged away on Edward's walls, their estates were open to attacks from gangs. Even worse, if we can get even worse, was the fact that the very people who should have been working against lawlessness and violence were themselves often willing participators. And for me, this is the most stark example of the violence inherent in medieval society. Because the magnates themselves carried out a constant war amongst themselves. In times of tight royal control, such as Edward I, this violence was often kept in check, such as the example Edward made of the earls of Hereford and Gloucester. But in the days of Henry III, as we have heard, and in Edward II's reign, when central authority is weak and the king a dipstick, the magnates take advantage. In 1317, the Earl of Lancaster waged what was effectively a private war on John of Warren. The same low standards applied to government officials. So let us take Walter Langton, treasurer of England and Edward I's right-hand man, and probably his only real confidant in his later years. His obvious corruption outraged even the magnates, who asked for him to be removed several times. He held several ecclesiastical appointments against the rule of the church. He used his position to appoint sheriffs who carried out his will. He was accused of murdering his mistress's husband, and was brutal in exploiting his position to build his wealth. So, for example, Richard of St. Valery owed him 200 quid, but failed to pay on time. Now my mother would continuously tell me never a lender nor a borrower be, so OK. But Langton put St. Valery in a dungeon, clapped irons on him, and then went and seized all his property anyway. Even in medieval England, this couldn't be described as due process of law. The crime problem was, of course, not new. We've talked about Edward's reputation as the English Justinian, And part of this had been his statute of Winchester in 1285, parts of which I have helpfully posted on the website www.thehistoryofengland.com. The preamble to the act says, "Because from day to day robberies, homicides, and arson[s] are more often committed than they used to be." So even in 1285 there was a recognition of the growth in crime. But by 1304. The situation had been particularly bad for at least a decade, given the constant war and lack of attention. Large-scale gangs were a particular problem, and often these gangs survived because they were available for hire by different parties. A bit like a party clown. So, for example, there's a leader in Worcestershire called Malcolm Mazzard. He leads a gang of archers and attacked a rectory in 1304 because he'd been paid to do so or there's John Fitzwalter in Essex, who actually besieged the whole town of Colchester and held it to ransom in entirety. This is crime on a big scale. So with the Scottish, French and Welsh wars apparently brought to a conclusion, Edward at last had the opportunity to fulfil one of the main roles of the medieval monarch to maintain the King's Peace. The crackdown Edward initiated in November 1304 became known as Trail Baston named after the large clubs, the Baston, that the gangs used to trail after them. Trail Baston was effectively a special circuit of justices sent out to specific parts of the country that needed particular attention. As a way of having a special focus on crime, it was reasonably effective, and would be used again in 1307 and in the reigns of his son and grandson. As a way of improving the basic structure of justice in England, it sucked. It sucked. The reason these gangs could stay at large for so long was due to another feature of medieval crime, the wide and slightly surprising involvement of the gentry, especially in organised crime. The delightful example usually given is of the Folville family, and it is rather fun, though I'll cut it down a bit. So, John Folville was the lord of two manors in Leicestershire and Rutland, and had the misfortune, poor lamb, to have seven sons. After his death, Some of his sons, led by Eustace Folville, form a gang with the D'Souche brothers. One of their aims is to kill their enemy, the powerful Roger Bellar, and this they manage in 1326, driving a knife deep into his heart. They were declared outlaws and fled the country, but here we see how politics plays a part, because they're then recruited into the rebel army of Roger Mortimer, who invades England and takes control. We've not come to this yet in our political history, happens under Edward II. So now, the Fulvilles have powerful protectors, and they run riot. Over the next few years, Eustace is accused of four murders, a rape and three robberies, and that was probably just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Meanwhile, another brother, John, had become a keeper of the peace, and despite supposedly being a pillar of the community, was probably actually using the position to feed his brother crucial intelligence. Now, at this point, one Sir Robert Colville starts hunting them and even tries to arrest them, but is beaten off and can't manage it. In 1331, the Folvilles are hired by a cannon of Sempringham Priory to destroy a water mill owned by a rival. So how outrageous is that? Sempringham Priory is one of the most famous religious houses in the whole country. Anyway, onward. They join up with a number of other gangs, and in 1332, they seize the royal judge... Robbed him of a hundred quid and ransomed him for the enormous sum of thirteen hundred marks. So then they are the focus of royal trail baston orders. But of the very few that appear before the jurors, almost all of them are let off because the jurors are too scared to convict. Quite remarkably, Eustace Folville then served in the Cressy campaign in France with Edward III and died peacefully as an upstanding member of the community in 1347. Meanwhile, leadership of the gang had passed to Richard Folville, who, get this, is a rector, a man of the cloth. But finally we get some justice when Robert Colville comes back on the scene and catches up with Richard Folville. The gang runs for sanctuary in a church, but Colville has no intention of giving them up. There's a shootout, and the gang is dragged out of the church and beheaded for resisting arrest. Now the thing to bear in mind about all this, although it is a particularly big example... This is not particularly exceptional. Although it would be difficult to argue against the statement that medieval England was a more violent place than modern England, it's difficult to put actual figures on it. Historians have tried, such as trying to compare homicide rates. There are so many qualifications on the figures, such as not knowing exactly what the population is, for example, small thing, but here are a few attempts. One estimate is that London in the first half of the 14th century had a homicide rate of between 18 and 52 cases for each 100,000 inhabitants, as opposed to a rate of about 1.5 today and a rate in New York of 6.4. Now it's clear that these figures are not very safe, but it's equally clear that whatever the actual figures are, you'd be safer in pretty much any town in modern England than you were in medieval times. Women, incidentally, receive only 10% of the accusations. They were much, much, much lower than men in homicide, but actually about equal to them in burglary. One of the problems was that the system of justice was pretty chaotic and subject to constant and substantial corruption. For these reasons, and for the hideous penalties involved, conviction rates were actually very low. So if you were accused, you had an 80% chance of getting off. Some studies have shown that the worse the crime, the more likely you were to get off. In a study of eight counties, for example, the conviction rate for homicide was 12%, whereas for robbery, it was 30%, much more. So there's an argument against the death penalty, maybe. So how did things actually work in medieval England on a day-to-day basis? The first point to make is that medieval England is different. I've lived in a small hamlet of, let's say, 200 people for about 15 years now. I commute, I leave early and get back late. At the weekend I'm knackered, do the allotment, shout at the children and do podcasts. So I do not know all of the 200 people I've lived with for so long. This would not be the case in medieval England. The population is a fraction of today's, maximum 7 million, probably quite a lot less. So everyone knows each other in a village... So much of what happens is also communal. Every villager who's not a freeman is organised into tithings of roughly ten men, with a chief tithing man whose job it is to make sure it's complete. If the tithing doesn't do its duty, there's a fine on all the tithing men, which at ten quid can be ruinous for a normal villager. So by and large, they'll dob you in. Because the job of the tithing is to dob your mates into the law if someone does something wrong. And the other thing to note is that in a society where everyone knows each other, it's difficult to keep things secret, and outsiders are immediately obvious. There is, however, a flip side to this. About 30% of those who are convicted are from outside the relevant community, and it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that this is more about fear of outsiders and convenience of accusing someone you don't know than a successful and safe conviction. When a crime's committed, the person who finds out first is responsible for raising the hue and cry. Everyone has to come in from the fields to pursue the criminal and get a posse together. When caught, the criminal should be handed over to the sheriff or to the constable of the local town to await the next opportunity to be arraigned. However, there is a law called Enfangtheof, a Danish law, where if the criminal is caught red-handed, you can deal with them there and then. And indeed... If the criminal resists arrest, then as long as the coroner arrives, summary justice can be handed out there and then. This means beheading for a man, drowning for a woman. Don't know why it's different. Give me beheading any day of the week. Here's a little example. It's London, 1337. Desiderata is found guilty of stealing 30 dishes and 24 silver salt cellars. Yes, 24 salt cellars, when she's staying with the Lady Alice de Lille. She's found red-handed with some of the stuff in her cellar, so she's dragged straight away and hanged at Tyburn. wham ban thank you, Sen. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. It might be that the criminal was heading for church to claim sanctuary, a famously medieval way of being able to avoid justice and leave the kingdom instead. But from what I've read so far, I personally wouldn't give a pig's bottom for sanctuary. If you've got a powerful enemy, they'll drag you out and kill you anyway. The Statute of Winchester I referred to above sets rules to ensure communities keep the king's peace. So, for example, city and town gates should be closed at sundown. There are to be watches in every settlement. Every lodger is the responsibility of their host, and if you are out of doors at night, you stand a very good chance indeed of being arrested. So, no late-night clubbing. No pun intended, of course. There's a lot of waiting around in the system. At this point in time, the sheriff is an immensely powerful figure. He runs the county courts every one to two months, and every three weeks goes round all the hundred courts, a process known as the Sheriff's Torn. But he's not a judge. He has to wait for justices to be sent out from London. So where the crime is serious enough, the accused has to wait. He or she may be put in the stocks, or in the local prison, which would usually be in the castle of the local lord, unless you're in a big town. Or they might build a wooden cage outside. And then you wait. Another little wrinkle is the process of approving. The idea is to encourage convicted criminals to dob in other criminals. In principle, it's not necessarily a bad idea, but there are some very inconvenient consequences. So there's an awful lot of counter-accusations which put victims under a lot of pressure to drop the original accusation. And many convicted criminals have absolutely nothing to lose and therefore spray accusations around like a water cannon, doing their very best to settle a few old scores before they go down. Here's one particularly nasty example of how counter-accusation could be used. Agnes de Holdenby was blinded by some assailants, who then cut out her tongue. But Agnes was made of stern stuff and still brought an accusation. Her attackers then brought a counter-accusation, which resulted in her being convicted and imprisoned. So we have county courts and hundred courts where things really happen. But the thing about medieval justice is it's horrible complexity. I mean, really, it's a mess. So you also have the church courts with cross jurisdictions. And boy, was Henry II right or what? If it hadn't been for Thomas Beckett, maybe the utterly daft benefit of the clergy thing would have disappeared earlier. But Beckett did win. So if you could read a Bible, you got to claim benefit of the clergy and get tried in a church court, which tended to be much more lenient. And you also have manorial and borough courts, as we've discussed many times, and these are, of course, not organised around the Shire and Hundred system, and so cross jurisdictions again. The manorial court's job is to deal with the effective running of the manor, so, you know, pigs getting into the wrong place, block streams calling flooding, local fistfights, payments of dues and Heriots, that sort of thing. But there's also a moral angle to all of this, which sits very uncomfortably with the modern ear, so, for example, the villains John Monk and Sarah, who is the wife of Simon Hewin on the Manor of Ramsay, are fined several times for adultery. They're dealt with for their moral transgressions by the church court, as was quite proper for the time, but eventually John is put in the stocks and also has to pay one mark to his lord as well as the church. This is due to the law of right literally a fine for lying down, which I believe we've mentioned before. And for the sake of completeness, though again I have a feeling we've mentioned it at some point, if you're a woman you can be put in the stocks for giving anyone a tongue-lashing. So here's the summary of a case in 1375. Alice Shetha was brought before the mayor. She was indicted for being a common scold, and for that all her neighbours by her malicious words and abuse were greatly molested, she sowing envy among them, discord and ill-will, and repeatedly defaming, molesting and backbiting. The said Alice was questioned on the matters aforesaid. She said she was in no way guilty of the things aforesaid. The jury said on their oath that she is guilty of all the things above charged against her. Therefore it was awarded that she should have the punishment of the pillory, there to stand for one hour. The pillory, as you probably know, was similar to the stocks. You stand up with your hands and head trapped, and people may come along and give you a piece of their mind and a piece of their rotten vegetables if they so wish. The law, meanwhile, as we've tracked over our last 80 podcasts together, remains rooted in the Anglo-Saxon system, with the odd update along the way. It's the royal justices that decide what is common law, i.e. law commonly applied to all, overriding local customary law. However, there have now been added a whole range of local bylaws in towns, just to add to the complexity of it all. So, in Hereford, you couldn't milk your cow in the high street which I found to be something of an inconvenience when Ermin and I visited last week. In Worcester, bakers can't get delivery of corn until eleven, and nor can anyone play tennis in the Guildhall. There are billions of these. Many of them seem very obvious and sensible, e.g. not being able to throw the heads and feet of animals into the street, for example, particularly if the rest of the body is attached. But many of them appear utterly daft, because the reason behind them is now obscure. But the point is that justice is often very, very local and needs a very close understanding of who has jurisdiction for what and what law actually applied here. The penalties for many of these crimes are hideous, of course. Death for stealing a few dishes, for example. And death is the normal punishment for most of them since keeping people in prison for a long time is such a pain in the backside. For some crimes, you might lose a limb. If you attack an alderman in London, for example, the hand which drew the weapon can be cut off. The same applies to animals, interestingly. So if you're caught poaching, your dog could lose a paw. Poor thing. Ha ha. Funnily enough, in France, this is carried to extremes. In 1349, a cow was solemnly burnt at the stake for happening to kill a child. Presumably, the Yorkshire puddings were prepared on the side for later. But burning as a punishment in England is disappearingly rare at this time. Witches and heretics are hanged, not burned. And life imprisonment, as I said, is similarly rare, though there is the odd example. The worst, of course, is reserved for treason. We've heard a bit of this from Daffod, but I thought this might be a good place to talk about William Wallace, just for a bit of gruesomeness. Wallace rather disappears after his gubbing at Falkirk, He appears in an embassy to France and some skirmishes in 1304, so we know he's still around. But after the peace in 1305, he's then an outlaw with a price on his head. And in August 1305, then, he was caught by a Scottish lord, John de Monteith, and turned over to the English, taken down to stand trial at Westminster Hall, although Edward, by the way, wasn't present. Now the English took a dim view of Wallace and his goings-on. I quote, William Wallace, a runaway from righteousness, a robber, a committer of sacrilege, an arsonist and a murderer, more cruel than Herod and more debauched in his insanity than Nero. As you can see, not a popular chap down south. The view in Scotland, of course, was very different. At his trial, the view taken was that he was just obviously a criminal. Everyone knew of his crimes. Wallace's famous and not unreasonable point was that he couldn't be tried for treason, since in his words, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I was never his subject. And unlike the vast majority of Scottish nobles, he had a point. Which, of course, did him no good whatsoever, when did being right ever endear anyone in a political trial. He was allowed to say no more, because it could be inconvenient, and the judgment of treason was duly agreed. So now, listen to this, because the punishment is really not good, though I we have rather heard it before with Daffod. But I've asked this time Henry to help to take you th- all through the process of execution for treason. Hi, Hen. Hello. We've just been talking about the execution of William Wallace in 1305. So, he's been found guilty and he's been taken to the Tower of London. What happened to him next?
1: Well, firstly, well, firstly they stripped him naked. Secondly, they tied him to a hurdle. And thirdly, they dragged him behind a horse through the streets of London to Tyburn. Ooh, dear. Yeah, was anybody
0: watching all of this?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Lots of people. They were all jeering and insulting him and probably throwing a lot of horrible stuff at him. Like Maybe what? Um, dead rats. M- there's Well, they did, they did that in... Um, Ooh,
0: dear. I don't like that then. very much.
1: What happened then when he got to ha- Tyburn? They Well, they hanged him on a gallows first. Then they cut him down and disemboweled him. And also cut off his bits. His bits. And burnt all of them in front of him. Yes.
0: Now, presumably by this time, he's well and truly dead, is he?
1: Nope.
0: No. No.
1: The executioners are really clever at it. They tied up the tubes to keep him alive so that he could see the bits of his body burnt. Interesting.
0: Yes, interesting. Anything else, or is that it?
1: Nope. How about about you um, try and guess what happened next? OK,
0: well, they cut his head off. Yes, they did. Hmm. So that's it. Although, no, no, hang on, we've had the hanging and drawing. What about the quartering bit? What's that all about? Ah, uh, yes.
1: Ah, oh, yes, the glorious quartering. Well, then, the body is cut into four pieces, like a quarter of chicken. And the head did tar to preserve it. And what happened to all the bits? The head was nailed to London Bridge... Then the pieces were sent to Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling and Perth. They did this to show the people what happened to rebels. Berwick? (laughs) Berwick. A lovely story. Thanks very much, Hen. You're most welcome. Goodbye, folks.
0: Nice. I'd always wondered about that key question, when they remove the entrails and the genitalia, is the guy still alive? I have to say, that wasn't really the answer I was looking for. So, just to summarise all of that, we have a picture of a system of complicated, overlapping systems. We have a picture of a system with extremely severe punishments. We've talked before about the process of convicting. I should just confirm that everyone still has the right to trial by deal and trial by battle, although juries are taking over more and more. There is a background of a rising tide of violence. And there is another problem we should mention about the corruption inherent in every aspect of the system. First of all, of the 628 hundreds in England, only 270 of them are in purely royal hands. The other 358 are controlled by barons. Now, the royal writ continues to run in the hundreds, but it's just that the writ goes to the relevant baron so it's entirely up to him about how far the royal orders are implemented, or not. Control of the sheriffs gives these barons enormous power, but they often control the coroners and bailiffs as well. It not only allows them to get the judgments they want, they also have lots of opportunities for extortion. One wheeze was to get approvers to make their accusations, then you hang the accuser, but you get bribes from the accused, to secure their bail and avoid a long stay in jail. Or, let's say the sheriff has a local enemy. Thomas Musgrove, for example, had a local enemy. He captured one of their servants, forced him to turn a prover, and made him accuse his enemy of the various crimes he could think up. Sweet. Or it could be a simple misuse of power, like tying the accused naked and cold to a post in a deep prison for a while, until they offer a suitable bribe. Really, being a sheriff is a licence to make money. Bribery is endemic though throughout the system, so jailers, for example, expected bribes from their inmates to make sure they're not misused or just to get basic food and clothes. There's a law passed in 1330 to stop jailers refusing to take certain prisoners, i.e. jailers were refusing the poor ones because they couldn't make any money out of them. So against all of this, kings faced a basic dilemma. On the one hand, they needed more justice to combat the amount of crime. And on the other hand, the more people you involved, the greater opportunity there was for corruption. The royal justice system of the time was composed of three main institutions, based in Westminster. There's the Court of the Exchequer. This dealt with financial arrangements with the Crown. There's the Bench of Common Pleas, that hears civil cases where people sue each other. And then thirdly, there's the King's Bench, which hears criminal cases and appeals. By the end of Edward's time, the General heir, as started by Henry II, is pretty much dead. There are attempts to revive it, but it's just too complicated, there's too much ground to cover, and they tend to run into the sand. Then we have assized justices, justices who have specific circuits who go out from Westminster and cover a particular territory. And then there are special attempts where someone presses a panic button, such as the trail baston process. And then there's a process called Oye et termine, which means to see and determine. Essentially, this is again a special process where the king orders a justice to go and try all the cases in a particular county and it's this last one that's getting ever more stretched and ever more used. By 1327, there are over 270 commissions of oye et Termine, ordered for one year. Now, I don't expect you to remember all of that, although there will be a quiz later, but the point is that it's a bit of a mess, and another solution was needed. And the answer was to devolve more control to the localities for a large proportion of the lower-level cases. That way more local people could be involved, action would be taken more quickly. The Three Edwards turned to the Knights, in the form of Keepers of the Peace. Keepers of the Peace had been irregularly appointed to help with local law enforcement in difficult times, such as the de Montford years, for example. As we move into the 14th century, they are being appointed with increasing regularity, but with no power to actually try cases just to arrest but where we're leading is towards the institution of the justice of the peace. Local magistrates, where local knights will be appointed with full powers for certain levels of cases. It'll take a while to come, but there are temporary examples as early as in Kent in 1316. And then it's Edward III who finally passes the relevant legislation in 1361. So there we are, our update on crime and punishment. I am behind with thanking people for their kind donations, so my very grateful thanks to Nicola, Jay, Paul, Martin, Tara, another Martin, I and James. Next week is back to the political story and we'll bring the reign of Edward I to an end at last. And thanks very much to everyone who's commented on iTunes or by email or on the website or on the rather excitingly growing Facebook group. Very much appreciated as always. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.